look at verse 1. It says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the week, on the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. Verse 4. And you shall bring in the uh, table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for the instance before the ark of the testimony and set up the screens, uh, screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offerings before the door of the tabernacle and of the tent of meetings. Do you hear a pattern here? There's a phrase that, that keeps being repeated in these verses that, that keeps going to it. It's you shall, you shall, you shall. Now, again, English kind of distorts this, but the you in Hebrew is singular. God is talking specifically to Moses here. God is commanding Moses to put together the tabernacle. And this keeps going, verse 8, and, and you shall set up. Verse 9, and, and you, you, Moses, you shall take. Verse 10 and 11, and you shall anoint. Verse 12, then you shall bring. Verse 13, and, and you shall anoint him. Verse 14, and, and you shall bring. Again, God is commanding Moses, specifically Moses, to put together the tabernacle piece by piece. Doesn't mean Moses has built everything. And we learned last week that skilled craftsmen, in fact, two men filled with the Holy Spirit, these men built all the different pieces of the ark, everything that would be used, or not the ark, the tabernacle, everything that would be used in the tabernacle. But in, in Exodus 40, God is commanding Moses to put it all together. And he did. Look at verse 16. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In other words, he obeyed. Verse 17, and the first month in the second year on the first day of the month, meaning one year after the exodus, the tabernacle was erected. Verse 18, Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases. Verse 19, he, Moses, he spread the tent over the tabernacle. Verse 20, he, again, Moses, he took the, the testimony and put it into the ark. Verse 21, he brought the ark into the tabernacle. And this just keeps going. God commanded Moses to put everything together, and Moses did it. He obeyed. In fact, this keeps going all the way to verse 33. Look at verse 33. It says this, And he, it's Moses, and he erected the court around the tabernacle and, and the altar and, and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Now, just so you know, I, I don't necessarily think this means that Moses did it alone. That kind of misses the point. The point is that God built the tabernacle through Moses. He built the tabernacle through Moses. And, and this leads to an important question because there's 33 verses dedicated to it. Pretty much the whole chapter of chapter 40 is dedicated to Moses getting commanded to put the tabernacle together and then Moses putting the tabernacle together. In fact, we, we got the instructions for the tabernacle, five chapters, and we, we got that everything was built, and then there's a spe specific chapter saying that Moses is the one that built it. God built the tabernacle through Moses. 
Why does God want us to know this? Why spend so much time telling us this? There are parallels in Scripture where God uses men or uses a man to accomplish his task. We see this throughout Scripture. There's a couple places that, that parallel this. Think of garden, or Adam in the garden. He was to work the garden. God worked the garden through Adam, in other words. Or think of Noah and the ark. God built an ark to save mankind through his servant Moses. Or think about David and the temple. David prepared and got all the materials needed for the temple to be built, and his son Solomon built it. There are parallels. These are parallel stories, but I think there's one parallel that's meant to be seen in Exodus 40. Just listen to John chapter 1, verse 1. It says this. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, through the word, through Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. The scripture is very clear on this. All of creation was made through the word, through Jesus. God created everything through the word. Remember, The author of Exodus is making a connection, and we've seen this over and over and over again in the book of Exodus. He's making a connection connection from creation to the tabernacle. It's the same author, Genesis, in Exodus, and there's a connection that he he wants us to see with the tabernacle and creation. Again, he shows us this over and over again, and this connection keeps going even into Exodus 39 and chapter 40. The author is purposely using, in fact, similar language to connect the creation account to the creation of the tabernacle. Genesis 1 through 3, he's connecting to the creation of the tabernacle. Let me just show you what I mean. I'll give you a few examples. This is Genesis 2, verse 1. It says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. Exodus 39 verse 32 it says this thus all the work of the tabernacle the tent of meetings was finished same exact hebrew word genesis 2 verse 2 says this and on the seventh day god finished his work that he had done the very end of exodus 40 verse 33 says this the very end of the verse so moses finished the work again same hebrew words Genesis 1, 31, it says this, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Exodus 39, 43, And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. Same construction in Hebrew. Genesis 2, 3, So God blessed the seventh day. The end of verse 43, Then Moses blessed Again, there's remarkably similar language used in the creation account and the creation of the tabernacle, which just reinforces this theme that we have seen over and over and over again, that the tabernacle is a recreation of the garden. It's a recreation of the garden. Just like God created the garden in Genesis chapter 2, through his word, through his son, God created the tabernacle, through his servant, Moses, a type of Christ, a type of God's son. The tabernacle is a recreation 
of the garden, meaning God is reversing the effects of sin in Genesis 3. The separation between man and God that happened after the fall, God is reversing the effects of sin by by recreating the garden in the midst of his people, the Israelites. The tabernacle will be the dwelling place of God on earth. That's the connection. Just like the garden where God dwelt with man, walked with Adam, Just like the garden, the tabernacle will be God's dwelling place within his people, the Israelites. And this is where all of Exodus has been leading us. In the entire book of Exodus, throughout Exodus, in fact, I think from Genesis on, it's been leading us uh, to this one place. And and it really brings us to the climax of of the entire book of Exodus, which is in one verse, verse 34, which says this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meaning, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I can't overstate how important this verse is. Again, everything in the book of Exodus has, has led to this point where God's glory will descend onto the tabernacle and fill the tabernacle. Everything. From the the growth of Israel in Exodus 1 to the calling of Moses in Exodus 2 through 6. From the plagues on Egypt and the salvation of Israel, Exodus 7 through 12, to the, the Red Sea crossing and the destruction of the Egyptian army, Exodus 14 and 15. From the provision of God in the wilderness, Exodus 16 through 18, to the to the covenant God made with his people Israel in Exodus 19. From the the giving of the Ten Commandments and the law in Exodus 20 through 24 to the instructions of the tabernacle in Exodus 25 through 31. From the sin of the golden calf in Exodus 32 through 33 to the renewal of the covenant, Exodus 34 through 39. Everything, everything, two and a half years of preaching, 40 chapters, it's all led up to this one verse where the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Remember, this is the same glory that was revealed at Mount Sinai. I mean, think about that for a second. The terrifying and awesome glory that descended from heaven like an earthquake, like a fire, like a volcano erupting in full force. This, this terrifying and awesome glory veiled in a, in a cloud. Veiled so that the Israelites wouldn't die by being exposed to the full glory of God. A, a, a glory so terrifying that the reflection of the afterglow on Moses' face shone like the sun and caused panic and fear within the camp of Israel. Again, that's the reflection of the afterglow of God's glory. terrifying and awesome glory of the Lord that we've seen throughout the book of Exodus has now descended not just from heaven to the top of the mountain but from the top of the mountain onto the tabernacle and has filled the tabernacle. I mean, just picture that. The pillar of fire and smoke, this whole mountain on fire, descending from the top of the mountain onto the tabernacle, then entering into it, filling the tabernacle, meaning 
the tabernacle has become in Exodus 40 the garden. It's become a, a portable Mount Sinai. God's presence and glory is now on earth, dwelling with man in the tabernacle. I mean, there's just so much meaning in this one verse, so much significance. Then the cloud, verse 34, it says, In the cloud, the again, pillar of fire bailed in clouds that came from heaven to the top of the mountain. Then the, then the cloud covered the tent of meaning. That's the tent portion of the tabernacle. It descended from the mountain to above the tent of meanings and covered it. And then the glory of the Lord filled, filled the tabernacle. Just amazing. Amazing. Again, so much meaning that's in this one verse, just like the garden again, God is once again dwelling in the midst of his people in the center of their camp, in the tabernacle in the holy of holies God is in covenant relationship with his people and now is living with them and this again is the climax of the book of Exodus but it's not the end it's not the end now, don't worry. We're, we're done with Exodus. I'm not, this is not... I'm not going to keep going. It's the end of Exodus. It's, it's the climax of Exodus, but it's not the end of the story. Exodus 34 is the climax, but, but Exodus verse 35, 40 verse 35, introduces a dilemma. In fact, introduces is not the right word because the dilemma that we have seen throughout the book of Exodus is a, it's a dilemma we've seen since the fall all the way up to this point, and it's one that we'll see through the entire Old Testament. How can a holy God live in the midst of a sin-filled people? It's the question. This brings me to my second point this morning. The, the climax is found in verse 34. The dilemma is introduced verse 35 and it's not just a dilemma it's shocking it's shocking in fact even if you weren't an Israelite if you were someone that just that just has never heard of scripture we we get numb to some of the shocking things in scripture because we just know the story of scripture as christians and in a christian culture but if you're someone that has never heard any of the stories of scripture or the bible at all and you started reading in genesis and you read all the way up to exodus 40 verse 35 you would be shocked the glory of the lord filled the tabernacle verse 35 and moses Moses was not able to enter into the tent of meaning because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's shocking. Just think about that for a second. Remember, this this is the tent portion of the tabernacle, the tent of meaning. It's called the tent of meaning because it's, it's where Israel would meet with God. But in verse 35, not even Moses, not even Moses was able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's shocking. It's shocking because, listen, if Moses, if Moses can't enter the tent of meeting, then who can? No one. I mean, 
Exodus 40 just compared Moses to God's word (laughs) as a type of Christ. And then we get to verse 35, and it's very clear that he is not Christ. Because not even he can enter into the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Verse 35 tells us the story of Israel's relationship with God is not done. Listen, Exodus ends in a dilemma. It's not a completed story. It ends in a a cliffhanger or a to-be-continued. This is not the end of the story, which leads to a question. What is the point of the tabernacle if you can't enter it? What's the point of the tabernacle if you, you can't meet with God? What's the point? Exodus ends with a, with a to-be-continued. And listen, Leviticus is the continued story. I'm so tempted to just keep preaching through Leviticus. But I've been told not to. So, so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to preach all of Leviticus right now. You, you think I'm joking, right? Turn to Leviticus 1, verse 1. This is, this is right after God's glory has entered into the tabernacle. His presence and his glory has filled the Holy of Holies. And, and because of that, not even Moses can enter. So he speaks out from the tabernacle. And look what he says. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meaning, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of a livestock from the herd or from the flock. Verse 3, if, it, if his offering is a burnt offering. Now, now this keeps going. It's all the laws surrounding the burnt offering, the laws surrounding all the different. In fact, Leviticus chapter 1 through 6 is all about the sacrifices and offerings that the, the Israelites would be making on the bronze altar in the courtyard of the tabernacle. Offerings made right in front of the tent portion of the tabernacle. There's five kinds of offerings. Leviticus 1 talks about the burnt offering. We saw that in verse 1. Or what I like to call the whole burnt offering. Sometimes called that in scripture. It's called that because it's where the whole animal is to be burnt. It's to be sacrificed and then the whole animal is to be burnt on the altar. This offering represented the complete surrender of Yahweh. Or to Yahweh. The, the whole animal Turn to Leviticus chapter 2. It says this, when anyone brings a grain offering. Leviticus 2 is about the grain, or or what I like to call the tribute offering. The worshiper would bring uh, a sacrifice, part of his harvest. He would burn part of it on the altar, and he would give part of it to the priest. This was a a tribute to God. It was like bringing a, a gift to the king before you approached him. Turn to Leviticus chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, this is my favorite offering out of them all. Chapter 3 is all about the peace offering, or sometimes called the fellowship offering. This offering, only part of the animal was burned, the fat portions of the animal. The, The rest of the animal was grilled and eaten by the worshipers. This was a a sign of fellowship between God and man, a a joy-filled celebration. It it was literally a barbecue, (laughs) commanded by God. Again, I've pointed this out a number of times. We have such a a false perception of the Old Testament. 
God is commanding Israel to have a joy-filled celebration representing the fellowship he has with them. It's a peace offering. Chapters 4 through 6 of Leviticus is talking about the law surrounding the sin and the guilt offerings. These offerings were to atone for a a particular sin or a, a sin unknown maybe, either for the individual or for the nation. In these offerings, a sacrifice was made And the blood of that sacrifice was sprinkled on the the bronze altar itself. The blood represented the payment of sins. The animal died, in other words, in place of the worshiper. In fact, when you read through the laws, it was actually the worshiper, the person that brought the animal, that had to slit the animal's neck, throat. The priest would take the animal after it was dead and do the rest. It was the animal that was a substitute that atoned for that person's sin. Chapter 7 through 8 has to do with the consecration of the priests. The priests were the ones that would take the animal and then burn it on the altar. The men who were, were, would make these offerings on the altar, they had to be consecrated, set apart. Therefore, Leviticus 1 through 9, those nine chapters, is all about offerings and sacrifices made in the courtyard, in the bronze altar, just in front of the tent of meetings. Listen, Leviticus tells us something. It tells us that it's only through sacrifice, it's only through offerings that God's people can approach God. The burnt offering, the peace offering, the sin and and guilt offering. Now, turn with me to Leviticus 9, verse 22. Leviticus 9, verse 22. Follow along with me as I read verse 22. It says this, And Aaron lifted up his hands and toward the people and blessed them, and he came down from offering the sin offering and the burn offering and the peace offering. These are all the offerings commanded by God in Leviticus 1 through 6. And look what happens, verse 23. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent entered into the tent portion of the tabernacle. And and listen what happens. And and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. I I don't even know what happened there. (laughs) What that looked like. But look at verse 24. It says this, And fire, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Again, Leviticus 1 through 9 is is answering the question, the question that's proposed at the very end of Exodus. How can a, a God, a holy God, dwell in the midst of a sinful people? How can God's people have fellowship with him? How can they draw close to the presence of God? The answer, only through sacrifice. Only through sacrifice. Exodus 40, 35 leaves the book of Exodus in a dilemma. Leviticus answers that dilemma by showing man's need for a sacrifice. In fact, I've said this a number of times. I've said this a number of times. Usually the most important thing in Hebrew writing is right in the middle. For us in the Western civilization, it's towards the end. 
for, for Hebrews, it's usually right in the middle. Well, think of the Pentateuch. How many books are in the Pentateuch? Well, there's five. That's where we get the name Pentateuch from. It's the first five books of Scripture. Well, that means there's a book right in the middle. What book is that? Leviticus. All the laws surrounding the sacrifices. If, if you go to the very center of the book of Leviticus, that's chapter 16, what is that? It talks about the Day of Atonement. It's the high point in all of the Pentateuch. Sacrifice. It's through sacrifice that we can approach an holy God. Now, there's something else I want to point out, and I think this is important. Turn to Leviticus 6, verse 12. Leviticus 6, verse 12. Just think about this. These are the laws, again, surrounding all the different sacrifices, how the priests were to do the sacrifices and offerings. Listen, listen to what it says, verse 12. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn on it the fat portions of, uh, of the peace offering. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. Continually it shall not go out. That's crazy. I mean, think about that. Always, always a sacrifice on the altar. The fire always going. I mean, think how much work and effort would be put into that. Listen, one of the reasons I think many Christians struggle with the book of Leviticus is that it, it's so detailed and repetitive. I've only briefly described the five different sacrifices that we see in Leviticus 1 through 9. There's way more details and laws surrounding these sacrifices. But not only that, Leviticus 6, 12 through 13 tells us that, that these sacrifices would have gone on continually. Non-stop. They would have always been fire on the bronze altar. Always. Verse 13, the fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. Just think about that for a second. For how detailed and tedious these sacrifices are. I mean, it's just hard for us Christians to read through it. For how detailed and tedious. Could you imagine the job of the priest? It was both tedious to, to do these sacrifices and never ending. Always. For Israel to stay in a covenant relationship with God, to, to have fellowship with God, to, to be able to enter into the tabernacle, sin had to be dealt with, and it was an endless job because Israel's sin was endless. They were a sin-filled people. Let me just think about this for a second, okay? The tabernacle is in the center of the camp of Israel. Everyone's living on the outside of the camp. Anywhere you lived, no matter what tribe you're in, where, where you lived, anywhere you lived, you could see the smoke ascending into heaven from the tabernacle, and it would have gone on continually, always. There's always a plume of smoke rising from the courtyard of the tabernacle, going and every time you looked over at the tabernacle and saw the smoke going up, you're reminded two things. First, you are a sinner. Second, your need for a sacrifice. 
you are a sinner in need of a sacrifice. The job of a priest was just an unending job in the Old Testament. And really, in a lot of ways, it was a frustrating job. It was a frustrating job. It led to a question, and I think this was purposeful on God's part. It led to a question, and the question is this. Will there ever be a permanent solution to man's sin? In fact, you would. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, 11. It says this. Word of the Lord, it says, and every priest, talking about Old Testament priests, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Again, frustration, unending. But it's worse than that because look at verse 11. It says, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. The sacrificial system in Leviticus that we just kind of covered quickly didn't actually take away any sin. It's one of the reasons that that it was unending, continuous, because it it didn't actually take away sin. I mean, think about it for a second. There there is no animal that could actually pay the wages of man's sin. It's It's an internal debt. Only something eternally valuable could could pay the price. Therefore, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament in Leviticus only had one job, and that was to frustrate Israel. To frustrate Israel and therefore point them forward to a permanent solution to sin. A a better sacrifice. Look at verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, what did he do? He sat down right hand of God. The priest stood daily, endless job, sacrificing animal after animal and animal in the courtyard over and 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 over again. But after Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting. He's, He's waiting waiting for that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. All the Old Testament sacrifices, the millions of animals, the millions of animals slaughtered in the Old Testament, they did one thing. One thing. They pointed Israel forward to the true Lamb of God the true sacrifice for sins. Listen, the sacrifices talked about in Leviticus pointed Israel forward to Jesus. Pointed Israel forward to the cross. The sacrifices talked about in Leviticus that brought access to God, allowed Moses to enter into the tabernacle, foreshadowed Jesus' sacrifice that brings an even greater access to God. This leads me to my last point this morning. Last point this morning. The resolution. The resolution. Listen. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we now have access to God. 
because of Jesus' sacrifice, we now have access to God in a way that would have been unimaginable by Old Testament saints. Completely unimaginable. I mean, even Moses himself would would have been blown away with what Jesus' sacrifice accomplished. And, And I want you to hear this. We Christians take it for granted. We take it for granted. This is a convicting sermon to me because I take it for granted. Let me explain what I mean. If you would, turn back to Exodus 40. Exodus 40, verse 34. Climax of the book of Exodus and the cloud covered the tent of meetings and the glory of the Lord. What did it do? It it filled. It filled the tabernacle. This is the climax of Exodus. God's glory filled the tabernacle. the, the, The pillar of fire and cloud. The terrifying and amazing glory that was on the mountain descended from the mountain onto the tabernacle and then filled the tabernacle. And because of this, man's axis was limited. Verse 35, and Moses, Moses, let me stop there, Moses, who put everything together. Moses, who took the, the Ten Commandments on the stones and actually put them into the ark and covered it. Moses, who put the veil up. Moses, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meetings because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Again, it wasn't until Leviticus 9 that Moses and Aaron had access to the tabernacle. After all the tedious sacrifices and offerings in Leviticus 1 through 6. But even after that, it would be clear, but even after that, it was dangerous. Remember all the cherubim that are inside the tent portion of the tabernacle? You walked into the tabernacle, you see these angels, and all these angels are a warning. Be careful because you're coming close to the presence of God. In fact, one chapter, Leviticus 9, men enter into the tabernacle. Leviticus 10, Aaron's firstborn sons are consumed by fire in the tabernacle because they offered strange fire, killed, because they didn't obey God to the letter of the law. Limited access. A limited access. I mean, think about this. Only the priests could enter into the tent portion. We've talked about this, the beautiful portion, the heavenly portion. Only the priests could enter into that portion. But only the high priest, one man and only once a year, could enter the Holy of Holies. That was it. It was limited access. Now turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 7. Second Chronicles chapter 7. Turn right, go through 1st and 2nd Samuel, see 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. 2nd Chronicles, chapter 7. I want to go here because this text is actually parallel. This, this portion of scripture is parallel to Exodus 40. Let me just give you some context, and I think you'll see why it's parallel. Israel, Israel is now in the promised land. In fact, they've been in the promised land for some time, meaning they're not a wandering people anymore. We're starting to see permanent structures getting built, the Houses are permanent. They're not tents anymore. And David wants to build a temple, a permanent tabernacle, a temple for the Lord. 
God says, no, your son will build it. So David gets all the materials for it. Solomon, David's son, ends up building the, the temple, this permanent tabernacle. By accident, or by Second Chronicles chapter 7, the temple's built, and Solomon has just dedicated it with prayer. And look what happens in verse 1. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, listen to this, fire came down from heaven, descended from heaven, fire, and the glory of the Lord filled, there's the same words, filled the tabernacle, or the temple. Does that sound familiar? It's Exodus 40, right? Very similar. The, the temple is filled with the presence and, and the glory of God. Fire came down, descended from heaven, and, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Look at verse 2. Look what happens. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled. The glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Just like the tabernacle. God's presence descended on the temple. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. And what happens? As soon as God's glory enters the temple, man has limited access, just like the tabernacle. The priest, just like Moses, couldn't enter because God is holy and man is sinful. There's still a tension, still a tension between a holy God and a sinful man. Look at verse 3. And all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple. Fire came down on top of the temple. They, they bowed their faces, they bowed with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Exodus 34, by the way, the revelation of God's name, repeating how God's revealed himself. God's glory comes down, enters the temple, and man has limited access. Now turn to one last place with me. Another parallel text. Turn to Acts chapter 2. We've been in Acts kind of a lot the last couple of weeks, seeing the connection between Exodus and Acts. In Acts chapter 2, this is the birth of the church. Look at Acts 2, verse 1. says this, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. This is the disciples of Jesus. They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven, from above, meaning descending, a, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And listen to this, divided tongues as of what? Fire. Appeared to them and rested came down and rested on each one of them. And look at verse 4. And they were all what? Filled. Same word. Filled. In fact, the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, uses the same exact word. Filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, God's presence comes down from heaven. It descends from heaven as of fire. Divided tongues as of fire and rest upon the disciples. And then, then God's presence just like the tabernacle, just like the temple, God's presence 
filled these men, the very presence of God, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Let that settle in for a second. In the new covenant, because of Jesus' sacrifice, not only do we have access to God, access that Moses didn't even have at the end of Exodus. Moses. Access that the preach, or priest didn't have in, in 2 Chronicles verse, chapter 7. Not only do we have access to God, but the church, the church, the people themselves, us, us together, we have become the very temple of God. That's amazing. This is not what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. He says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that the Spirit, that God's Spirit dwells in you? You know, I think Paul has to ask this question because it's just so unbelievable. <laughs> Paul, a Jew who understood what this meant, it's just so unbelievable, and he understands that the church just takes us for granted. We just take it for granted that the Holy Spirit lives within us. It's an amazing thought. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, there's a misconception that I think we get as Christians a lot. We, we, we talk a lot about us being the temple of God individually, which is true. But almost always the you, English messes it up, is plural. Meaning you all are the temple of God. Meaning when we come together and worship, this is the tabernacle. This is the temple. God's spirit is present. It's an amazing thought. That would have been unimaginable in the Old Testament. At the end of Exodus, Moses couldn't even enter the tabernacle. God's, God's presence enters it, and man's, man's access is now limited. But in the New Testament, because of Jesus' sacrifice, we are the very tabernacle of God, the temple of God. That is just a weighty, glorious reality, a reality that, that really, and we see Paul, Paul do this, a reality that, that should affect the way we live. Paul gets application out of this, that we need to remind ourselves that we are the temple of God and we should live a certain way. And you know what? I just can't think of a better way of ending two and a half years of preaching through Exodus and our journey through the book of Exodus climax being the, the, holy, the, the, the holy God of the universe, the glory of him coming down and filling the tabernacle. I can't think of a, a better way than, than ending with this unbelievable reality that we are the temple of God. We are the temple of God. That if you have put your faith in Jesus, if you have trusted in him, God's spirit, God's presence dwells.
personally ask for forgiveness, Lord, for taking for granted the, the reality of this truth, that this truth is just not on my mind every second of the day, Lord. God, help me think through and realize and, and live in the reality, Lord, the implications of what it means that the Holy Spirit lives within me. Help us as a church, Lord, understand that reality to the best of our ability, Lord, that we would be moved and affected, that we would live a particular way with that reality, Lord, that we are the temple of God. What an amazing thought. It just proves how amazing the sacrifice was on the cross. access with you. Not only do you live in our midst, but you live within us. What a thought.